Business Class, a podcast sponsored by the iBear MBA program of the USC Marshall School of Business. Expert insight into the world of business. Oysters, an image of saltwater shorelines and seafood, appear at just the mention of the word. It also turns out that oysters are the canary in the coal mine when it comes to the effects of climate change. In this episode of Business Class, we go to the Pacific Northwest to speak with Bill Dewey of the Taylor Shellfish Company about how their industry was one of the first that was forced to react to the impacts of climate change. Taylor Shellfish is a family company that has been farming shellfish in the Pacific Northwest since the 1890s. We met Bill on Samish Bay, a prime shellfish habitat of Northwest Washington's Salish Sea. You're right in the middle of the bay. So the bay is about three miles across to Samish Island. So if you were here a few hours ago, all of this water would have been gone and there would have been thousands of acres of tide flats exposed. Oysters are delicate creatures. They feed by filtering their food from the water. The more oysters that live in an area, the cleaner the water will be. But problems start when there are problems with the water. You know, decades ago, our industry suffered from the impacts of point source pollution. So actually, early in the 1900s, it was the pulp and paper industry and effluent from the pulp mills that devastated our native oysters and caused the transition to the Pacific oyster we farm today. But the Clean Water Act has addressed all those point source pollution uh, sources. But today we suffer what they call non-point pollution, which is from a whole variety of sources, is from all of us, really, and things that we do. So it might be stormwater runoff. More often in the rural areas where we farm, it's failing septic systems or agricultural runoff where uh, animal waste is getting into streams and so on. We have a lot of dairies and farms upriver here that we work with to try to make sure they manage their, their nutrients appropriately and not get into the bay. A new danger in the water has surfaced for the industry. Ocean acidification means that oyster farmers have to worry about more than just clean rivers and streams. We've talked about the non-point pollution sources, and those are things that we can work with our local governments to address and our, our local communities to address. But we've learned here in just the last few years that we're facing a more daunting pollution source that is way beyond our ability to do anything locally or as an industry, and that's ocean acidification. It's caused by carbon pollution, and when that CO2 is absorbed by the ocean, changes that seawater chemistry, makes, makes it more acidic, and more significantly for our shellfish, the chemical reaction that happens when that CO2 is absorbed by the ocean reduces the availability of carbonate ions, which are the building blocks of the shells of the animals that we raise. So in particular, it impacts the baby oysters most vulnerably. So in our hatchery, as we're trying to produce seed, we suddenly started to see effects in 2008 and 2009 where all of our cultures were dying, and it's taken some time to learn exactly what was causing it, but now we understand it's ocean acidification, and the baby oyster shells were dissolving faster than they could grow them. We asked Bill how ocean acidification affects a baby oyster. I mean, it's been fascinating to learn what's actually happening. You know, so after that egg is fertilized, 
it's got to do two things in the first 48 hours of life. It's got to build a shell to protect itself, and it's got to build an organ to feed with to get more energy. And it does that with all, all with energy stored within the egg. So if there aren't enough carbonate ions in the water, struggles to build that shell. The shell comes out small and deformed, and it runs out of energy before it builds its swimming and feeding organ, and it dies. And, you know, for us, it's been an evolution of understanding. You know, 2008, 2009, our larvae production in our hatchery was off by about 75%. Same time, one of the other major hatcheries on the Oregon coast was experiencing similar losses. At the same time, natural sets in areas where the industry collected seed in the wild were failing. We had a seed crisis on the West Coast. And it's, it took time for the scientists to work with us to try to understand what was happening. And that story I just explained to you, you know, was a few years in the making to get that understanding. A collaboration between science, industry, and policymakers turned the corner for the shellfish growers. You know, it's one of the best collaborations I've seen in my 35 years in the industry. It's a, a collaboration of our industry scientists with NOAA scientists uh, and with university scientists up and down the coast trying to sort this out for us. And, you know, it was in the news, obviously, that we had this seed crisis. And Dick Feely, who's one of the leading uh, NOAA scientists on ocean acidification, got his attention he came to us and he said, here's what I think may be killing your larvae. And that so began the research and that understanding. And, you know, the, the policymaker response was outstanding, frankly. Governor Gregoire at the time, our governor here in Washington State, formed a Blue Ribbon panel. I served on that panel, but it had scientists and policymakers and, and, and just the right mix of people. that worked hard, came up with 42 recommendations that she put into an executive order. The legislature acted on her recommendations and, and they appropriated funding for the University of Washington to establish an ocean acidification center. They passed legislation to create the Marine Resources Advisory Council, which is essentially Governor Inslee's ocean acidification blue ribbon panel. I serve on that today as well. And so the policymaker response, uh, both here in the state and, and uh, at, the, at the national level, Senator Cantwell and other of our members uh, of the Washington delegation have been outstanding in driving a response for ocean acidification nationally as well. Bill explained why the CO2 problem is as big as the Pacific Ocean. The majority of it is coming from Asia, and those emissions are being absorbed by the Pacific Ocean. And then the CO2 that's upwelling on our shores has been circulating at depth, they tell us, for 30 to 50 years in the Pacific Ocean. And now it's surfacing with this upwelling and causing these problems in our hatchery. And so this has been probably the most sobering part of the message we learned from the NOAA scientists is that even if we can convince the world to stop burning fossil fuels today, the problem for us is going to get worse for the next 30 to 50 years because of what's already in the Pacific Ocean pipeline coming our way. He put the win of fixing the hatchery problem in context by noting that untreated ocean water still flows over the oyster farms and the creatures that live in the wild. Well, eventually the science has evolved to where now we have treatment systems, so it doesn't matter if that water is bad coming in or not. We can fix it. And the volumes of water that we're using in the hatchery are not so big that we can do that economically. When it comes to the wild and on our farms, 
we don't have that option, obviously. Uh, so, and we know as conditions get worse, that eventually it's going to start to affect our juveniles and our adults on our farm. And the type of calcium carbonate that they use is going to be vulnerable as well. To do the treatment that we're doing in the hatchery is not practical to do in the ocean. You know, so you've got to find different ways to do that. Create refuges, whether it's with the algae culture, the seaweed culture, or other ways. That you know, And that's part of what the science is looking at now. Are there natural refuges or are there refuges that we can create for commercially important and environmentally or ecologically important species that you need to try to protect and you know lots of good science happening to try to understand more broadly beyond oysters what other organisms are being affected and how you know obviously calcifiers are vulnerable Uh, they estimate roughly a third of the organisms in Puget Sound here are calcifiers you know so they don't unfortunately unlike oysters they don't have spokesmen like me that are out there you know, rattling the cages for them. Uh, you know, there are a lot of them are plankton species that are an important base of the food chain for salmon and things that we do like to eat. But you, you just don't, people don't seem to make that link like they do with oysters because you eat oysters directly. You know, so there's something there that's unique. I don't know what it is because, you know, one of the other um, best examples that's held up in the Pacific Northwest as an organism that's being impacted, it's a, it's a, um, uh, planktonic snail called a pteropod that has a shell it looks like a, they call it a sea butterfly but it's one of the main food sources for uh, pink salmon in particular but other salmon species as well and so if you take out their main food source you know what happens to the salmon you know this is this is more straightforward in my opinion than global warming and climate change i mean this is basic chemistry You know, you can do this experiment. Congressman Baird would say this all the time uh, because he was a great advocate on this ocean acidification issue, and I shared the stage with him many times. And he would say, you know, you can do this experiment a thousand times. You add CO2 to water, it's going to get more acidic every time. Bill noted that this type of event has happened in the past. Taylor's built our hatchery in 1989 and successfully grew billions of oyster larvae every year for you know 15 years until we started to have these big mortality events and over those 15 years we had events where everything in the hatchery would crash and die and we didn't understand it you know you'd go to the pathologist you'd go to everybody you could talk to and say you know what's going on if we don't know and and now I think what we understand is we had some upwelling events that brought this bad. We weren't monitoring water chemistry at that time, you know, and we brought this bad water into the hatchery and it killed the larvae. Even when we started to see these mortalities in 2008 and 2009, you know, we, all the larvae would drop out of the water. They'd be dead on the bottom of the tank. And we'd look at them under our microscope and say, up, they're dead. And it wasn't until the ocean acidification blue ribbon panel when... We were writing the report, and I said, you know, we've got beautiful pictures of the pteropod and what happens to the pteropod shell. We don't have any pictures of the oysters. And if you're going to feature that story, we need to get some, what I call the aha photo of the oyster. And so one of the nonprofits that worked on that blue ribbon panel found some funding and got us time on the scanning electron microscope at Oregon State University. And that was truly the aha photo. It was an aha moment for all of us when we saw the images of 
healthy oyster larvae that were grown with lots of carbonate ions and the ones that were grown without or with low concentrations. And you see this deformed little day-old oyster larvae, the diameter of a hair, but now you've got a really accurate picture of it. You see all the pitting and deformations in the shell compared to an oyster that's a third again bigger, perfectly round and, and healthy. You say, holy crap, what's happening? You know, we didn't see that under our microscopes, but once we got that magnification, that stimulated the scientists at Oregon State University to dig into that and say, okay, what's going on here? And it was that research that, you know, led me to the story that I told you about what happens in the first 48 hours of life. The baseline of the industry's knowledge changed. We asked Bill to explain what the industry insiders accept about CO2 and what the shellfish industry sees coming in the future. We understood that the ocean absorbed 25% of the CO2 that's emitted, and we used to think that was a good thing because it wasn't impacting the climate. But now we've come to understand that, oops, it actually is changing the chemistry of the ocean. And what we've done over the last 250 years of burning fossil fuels is we've increased the acidity of the surface waters of the ocean by 30%. And... Oceans are big, and by the end of this century, they estimate we'll have increased the acidity by 100 to 150 percent. And more significantly for the shellfish growers is in those 250 years, we've reduced the availability of carbonate ions, the building blocks of our shells, by 16 percent. And by the end of the century, they say that will be by 50 percent. And that's across the world's oceans. What we see today with upwelling events here in Washington state are those levels that are projected for the end of the century happen to us now. So we're growing our oysters in the ocean of the future. Business class, expert insight into the world of business. The host, Dick Drobnik, producer Pankaj Bhushan, director Dan Griffin, web developer Rick Pine, And I am Robin Garthwaite.